resolved. Liberalism gets the big questions right. Well, that was the motion posed at Friday's Monk debate in Toronto to a group of public intellectuals from across the globe. The starting point for the debate was that liberalism is in crisis, that tensions have reached a boiling point, that its critics believe liberalism has become an impediment to the goal of progress, and that humanity urgently needs a new animating ideology. My guest on today's program was at that debate, and he's here to give us some analysis. Harrison Lohman is a current affairs journalist in Toronto and the producer of this podcast. Harrison Lohman is my guest today on Lean Out. Harrison, welcome to Lean Out. Hi, Tara. Great to have you on today. So we are going to be talking about the Monk Debates today, a Canadian institution. It is high profile enough now globally that it is able to attract really big guests. So Harrison, walk us through who the debaters were this time around. So in the Fighting for Liberalism camp, you had former British cabinet minister, Brexiteer, devote Catholic and MP for uh, Northeast Somerset, Mr. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Also, he was joined by American writer and libertarian George F. Will, who's been at the Washington Post since, I believe, the 1970s, and at one point even won a Pulitzer Prize. On the against camp, you had British journalists, self-described communist and leftist thinker, Ash Sarkar. She actually once told Pierce Morgan on his show, I'm a communist, you idiot. Social conservative author and writer for Compact and the New Statesman, Sorab Amari. And he's a gentleman I believe you've had on the podcast twice now, if I'm if I'm right there. He is indeed. And uh, as a result, I was definitely rooting for him the other night. Uh, one thing I think the debate could have done a better job of is clarifying off the top what we mean when we use the term liberalism. Is it economic liberalism, free trade and open markets? Is it social liberalism, the emphasis on personal freedoms and self-actualization? Or is it political liberalism, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of religion and due process? So Harrison, can you, for our listeners today, just unpack this for us? How do we best think and talk about liberalism here? As you mentioned, there, there are a variety of definitions. If you just plugged that term liberalism into Google, Wikipedia would pop up and it would tell you it's a political and moral philosophy based on the rights of the individual, liberty, consent of the governed, political equality, right to private property, and equality before the law. Uh, a lot of people think it think of it in two ways. Classical liberals focus on free markets, and then left liberals would focus on civil rights. Now, it's not to be mistaken with you know being called a liberal. In the US, if you were called a liberal, you might think it's something like just you know someone who's left of center. Um, as Shadi Hamid says, who's a writer at The Atlantic, Technically, you can actually have a democracy that is a liberal. You can have an illiberal democracy. Uh, look no farther than some countries in the Middle East. Because democracy is a form of government built on you know, electoral procedures, allowing the majority of voters to decide a country's policy. And liberalism is a form of governing. It involves you know, individual autonomy, freedom of the press, social progressivism, this sort of thing. It's so interesting. And for people who have not yet had a chance to view this debate, which we can stream now online, talk to me a little bit about the flow of the debate. Kind of describe for me what it looked and sounded like. Did the debaters stay on topic? 
Yeah, I think you're going to pop the debate link in the show description too, so our listeners can watch there. Um, what did I think about that? I thought there was a good back and forth. It was uh, there was a free flowing section with some fire exchanges. I believe Ash dropped what was the first ever f bomb on the monk debates, which is pretty hilarious. But like a lot of debates that are between the left and right with panelists on both sides, it sometimes became an argument between capitalism and communism, or I guess you could say socialism. At times I found myself, and this happens a, a fair amount at the, the monk debates, given that they don't have Canadians that often joining being on the stage as panelists, uh, you don't get that many Canadian references. There were discussion, a lot of discussion about pounds. Uh, you know, waste being expelled into the North Atlantic Ocean off the coast of the UK, given that we had some Brits there, and a mention of an American supermarket chain that we discerned was a supermarket chain by the name of Piggly Wiggly. I had never heard of that before. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. I'm wondering, Tara, what, what do you think are the best parts of Canada that you would say we have uh, liberalism to thank for? Well, as an advocate for freedom of expression, as you know, we cover that a lot here. Of course, I, I have to say that. I really don't think you can have an open society or, or social progress without that. What, what do you think? Mm -hmm. So lots to be thankful for. And I guess we just had Canadian Thanksgiving pass and maybe people were thankful for liberalism around the table. I know that's weird. Uh, <laughs> but at the, at the same time, uh, I think it's also interesting how little we seem to be thankful for it, right? Like, a lot of us seem to take it for granted. We're complacent. Historian Neil Ferguson talks about this a lot. George Will hammered home this idea that people in developing countries are desperate to come over here and experience liberalism. They are literally dying to get into the West and have liberalism. And he's right, that's happening. At the same time, can you actually imagine, Tara, people born here, a North American telling you, I identify as a liberal and I'm willing to put my life on the line and die defending the idea of liberalism. It just, you, it just wouldn't happen. You don't really hear that that often. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. I do wonder people that come over here. I do think sometimes they're a little disappointed by what they find. I came to Canada and all I got was this stupid parka or something. Um, <laughs> I came to Canada. I could yeah. not find any housing anywhere. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm wondering, what are what were some of the more convincing arguments from where you stood that you thought were uh, appealing that caught your attention, maybe uh, changed your opinion? Mm. I found the con side arguments very convincing. So Ash Sarkar is much farther to the left than I am, but I found her points very persuasive, including on the how the housing crisis illustrates the failures of liberalism, but also on how much state coercion it takes to maintain this level of economic inequality in a system. And are we truly free in any meaningful way in that context? She also made a compelling point about how liberalism commodifies everything and often with negative results. So the contemporary example being online dating and how lonely and unhappy it's making a lot of people. I also found Saraba Mari incredibly convincing. As I said, I was a little biased going in because I, I like and respect him a lot. But I found him such an interesting figure in general because he is a social conservative who leans left on economic issues. And this, it turns out, is a position that kind of best describes the working class as a voting bloc, which is totally underrepresented in North American politics. Sarab, of course, has recently written this excellent book called Tyranny, Inc., about private power and how coercive it has become. So I think that research 
gave him an advantage at the debate. One of the great points, the stand-up points he made on Friday night, was the low-level conflict that is built into the system of liberalism because it calls each of us to maximize our individual well-being without regard for the greater good. And so Sarabamari said, liberalism denies that we can know the good and try to build it together. I thought that was just a really great point. What, what about you? What, what point stood out to you from Friday night? Mm-hmm. And I think some of the points you made, politicians are starting to notice that and take advantage of that, at least in their messaging. I don't know if they necessarily believe it themselves, but some powerful arguments, I guess, from either side. Jacob Rees-Mogg, he said, liberalism means you're in charge of your life rather than the state that it is liberal societies which uh, stand the test of time. He, he says the rest are, you know, you've seen them be lost to history, left to dust. He says liberal societies have lifted millions out of poverty, including millions of Chinese citizens who he says rode on our sort of liberal coattails to prosperity, taking advantage of our free markets, pulling people out of poverty over there. George Will was actually a pretty funny gentleman. 82-year-old gentleman, uh, he saw liberalism as uh, making markets allocate opportunity and wealth as opposed to political power doing it, and uh, spoke about liberalism creating a churning, disorderly, untidy society, but that that was part of the fun. Said he was funny because he kept, he repeated this line, like democracy, liberalism is like sex. If it isn't messy, you aren't doing it right, which was uh, interesting (laughs) to hear. On the other side of things, Ash uh, talked a lot about how Western liberalism has allowed for and benefited from uh, exploitative labor in the global South. She spoke for a lot of young people, I think, uh, myself included to a certain extent. She's 31, I'm 32. Uh, she talked about how our generation feels like every second has been commodified, which obviously you found interesting, and that liberalism hasn't produced the happiest of societies. It's actually created you know, a lonely society for some. Some people feeling disposable as they stare at their blue screens deep into the night on addictive apps that have been, you know, created to hold their attention as long as possible. And I can't remember who said it, but someone linked to this. I don't know if you remember. They said uh, TikTok is the death of liberalism. What did you think of that? (laughs) That's a good line. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Another good line from uh, Sorab was liberalism societies are shot through with coercion. Does it make any meaningful difference that today's censorship is meted out by large privately owned corporations? Do a Silicon Valley dweebs Birkenstocks taste any better than a commandant's boots? I thought that was a good one. What a line. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You seem to like his point about how there aren't only two paths society can choose to go down, liberalism versus socialism, that it isn't that stark, it isn't that black and white. There's actually a middle way to a certain extent. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, the version of liberalism we're currently living through is one of extreme, unrestrained liberalism. Uh, Francis Fukuyama talks about that in, in his recent book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. There is an option here, though, to moderate. And I think Sarab Amari made an excellent point there at the debate that this point of view, this stark contrast between liberalism and socialism, it forgets that there are all kinds of middle ground to be found in between. You know, I guess time will tell whether liberalism will be able to reform itself, given the amount of pressure it is now under, which I think this debate did a really good job of capturing. So the coming years are, are no doubt going to be interesting, if if nothing else. So, so tell us, Harrison, where did the evening conclude? What were the final results here? So the winner of the Monk debates is actually the team that convinces the most audience members to move 
over to their side. Everyone's given a clicker. They vote at the beginning of the debate and then at the end, and then you sort of compare the results. So the pro-liberal folks went in with 75% of the audience support, and they emerged with 61%, meaning they actually lost 14% of the room during that debate. The against liberalism folks that saying that liberalism doesn't have all the answers, they started with 25% support and ended up with 39%, meaning they actually increased their numbers by 14%. So in some ways, I guess you say liberalism won the night. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy to put it that way, though, isn't it? Um, but let's talk about what this what these results mean. I mean, my my sense is that Ash Sarkar and Sarab Amari were just honestly just more interesting thinkers, better prepared, more dynamic speakers. And the pro side often came across as as out of touch and at times at times a bit elitist, and which is a big critique of liberalism right now. So for instance, it was just curious to me that Jacob Rees-Mogg chose to highlight the fact that Roy Thompson, who's the venue, the hall was named for, was a close friend of his parents and even loaned them his house in France for their honeymoon. I mean, I'm not sure that that helped his case in the end. But why Why do you think the con side won the day? Mm-hmm. So I'll jump off that point you made there. I think people felt the pro-liberalism debaters may have been a bit out of touch. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, who you just brought up, he praised liberalism for saving us from a six-day work week, that it gives us a break. And I would say, uh, newsflash to the right honorable gentleman, uh, many millennials are grinding through each and every weekend, working through them unpaid. Uh, So there's that. And then you had Mr. Will saying that with liberalism, inevitably comes inequality, which we all understand. It's part of the system it's built in. He said, some people want to teach kindergarten. Other people want to run hedge funds. Bless them all. But the monetary rewards are going to be different. But I think most people are, you know, ideally in the perfect world would hope their kindergarten teachers raising the next generation of Canadians were paid more than hedge fund managers who are raising their computer mice. I'm going to I'm going to mention um a couple more things here. I think people including populists, critics of liberalism, they warmed up to it to a point, but then they look around their surroundings in 2023 and they see soaring the soaring price of houses which you touched on. They see opioid addiction running rampant through urban centers. They see an increase in loneliness. They see billionaires giving themselves bonuses, and they find themselves asking themselves, is this really as good as it gets? If this is what liberalism has allowed for, is this, if this is what it has on offer, then WTF? Like, I don't know. So Patrick Deneen, who I know is someone we both checked out, he puts it this way in his book, Why Liberalism Failed. The gap between liberalism's claim about itself and the lived reality of citizenry that I just described is now so wide that the lie can no longer be accepted, which I think is a a pretty interesting point. Well, that is a good place to leave it. This is, of course, one of the big discussion points on this podcast and, and on the Substack, and so very, very vital to the conversation today. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Harrison, and for all your work producing the podcast Lean Out these past few months. You're very welcome and uh, more to come. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. This week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. 
If you value independent journalism, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. And you can also support our work by rating and reviewing the show at Apple Podcasts.